Well, good evening, guys. Glad to see uh, we've got a, a faithful group of people that uh, wasn't scared away last week by the, uh, the, the weirdness of judges. Uh, so this week, um, we're going to have hopefully a little bit less gore than last week, but uh, still some kind of weird things that might make you squirm a little bit. Um, but that's, uh, that's the nature of the book of Judges. Uh, it gives us just a, a good reminder of God's ability to work through any and every situation. Uh, so some quick background. Um, again, so Judges takes place after Israel has conquered and settled most of the promised land and before they anoint a king over Israel to rule over them, to lead the people, to guide the people. Uh, so the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, has been partially conquered. That God had left some pockets for them to go in and drive out the remaining Canaanites as they grew and needed more space, and uh, as the younger generation needed to learn how to fight against their enemies and to obey God in this area. Uh, so Israel failed to do this in many areas, as we learned this past few weeks, that they did not conquer a lot of the land. They did not drive out a lot of the inhabitants there. So that became a problem for them, uh, that they would be drawn into the false worship and idolatry of the people around them. Uh, these different groups would take turns oppressing the people of Israel in judgment for what they had done, for the sins they'd committed against God. And in all this, we see God's ability to use anyone. We see God bring hope in darkness and his commitment to rescuing his people, uh, that God would be faithful to send a judge, to send someone in order to lead his people back into obedience and into the blessing that comes with that. And so our focus point this evening, kind of what we're going to see here tonight, is that God can and will use unlikely people to accomplish his purposes. And we saw a little bit of that already in the last few chapters of Judges, that um, a lot of the people God uses in the book of Judges are not what you would expect, really, when, when you're reading the scriptures. Um, that we do not see these morally upstanding, righteous people who have it all together, who are walking in obedience to God, um, there's some, but most of the people we read about in Judges are flawed, that they're having issues, that they're not necessarily walking in the way that God would have them do it. But God still is able to use them to accomplish good and to bring himself glory. And so we're going to see a few different people in our study here this evening, um, people that are from different backgrounds, people that probably wouldn't have been expected to be doing great things, to be accomplishing great things, and to be bringing glory to God and rescuing his people. But that's exactly what God does here. So that being said, let's uh, take a look here in the text. We're going to be in the book of Judges, covering chapters 4 and 5 this evening. Uh, so Judges 4 starts off in verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hatzor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. 
for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So the very beginning of this, we see Israel has made the same mistake again. Uh, that last week, we saw God send the first few judges to rescue his people. We saw the beginning of the cycle of judges here. Uh, that the people of Israel would be unfaithful to God, that they would turn away from him. They would walk in disobedience. They would sin. They would worship the false gods around them. God would send a foreign power, some ruler, to oppress the people in judgment for what they'd done, to remind them of the consequences of sin and what they were choosing to do. The people of Israel would repent of their sin or at least cry out to God for help there at the bottom of the cycle. Um, then God would send a judge, send a leader, some sort of tribal chieftain or some figure like that that would lead the people, that would defeat whatever enemy that they were facing at that moment and would deliver them from the oppression that they were facing. Unfortunately, people of Israel, again, followed that with unfaithfulness once again and began the cycle again. So we're going to see this over and over and over in the book of Judges. Um, just last week, we heard about them being delivered from their enemies, the Moabites. The land had rest for 80 years at the end of chapter 3. And then they forgot all of this, apparently, and turned back and sinned once again. Uh, so what we just read here at the beginning of verse 4, we're reminded that Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord in verse 1. This is a great reminder for us that good and evil find their meaning in God and their relation to him. That Israel was doing wrong, what they were doing was sin because it was evil in the sight of God. That evil was defined by what God told them, not by the cultures around them, not by what they thought would have been best or right or good in this situation. That they were in trouble because they had sinned by trespassing against a holy God and the words, the commands that he had given to them. So that was the mistake they made here. That after Ehud, the former judge, had died, that they again did evil before God. Verse 2 tells us that God sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hatsor. Uh, so Hatsor is one of those key cities overlooking a trade route that we talked about as we were going through Joshua. Um, this was a city that Israel had conquered and had destroyed, but apparently the Canaanites had taken it back, had rebuilt it to some level, and there was another king ruling there at this point in time, a king who had been oppressing the nation of Israel. Uh, it also tells us in verse 2 that the commander of his army was Sisera, uh, who lived in another city. And uh, Sisera is the one who we're going to see kind of taking the forefront in this story as Israel's primary foe, uh, that he seems to be the man who's at the front end, who's doing the dirty work, who seems to be kind of the face of the oppression Israel was facing in this story. So Israel sins, God sells them into the hands of a foreign king to teach them a lesson, and they cry out to the Lord for help in verse 3. Uh, we see them at least at some level, realize the foolishness of what they've done, the suffering they led themselves into, and so they cry out to God for help. A little side note they have on there, um, 
Not only did they cry to the Lord because of their suffering, they cried out to the Lord because Jabin and his general Sisera had 900 chariots. Um, that this was kind of the, the battle tank of the ancient time period, that this enabled him to exert his dominance over the region and to oppress them. So he had these 900 chariots in addition to the remainder of his army, and he had been oppressing Israel cruelly, it says, for 20 years. Uh, the people of Israel had been facing 20 years of judgment and oppression because of their disobedience before the Lord. There's consequences to sin. There's consequences to our actions. And even though we usually don't suffer in as dramatic a fashion as the people of Israel did here, we have to remember that when we choose to walk away from God, to turn away from the plans he has set before, from the commands he's given us, the way he has told us to live life, that there's going to be consequences there's going to be difficulty, uh, that God has not promised us an easy life, but he has promised that if we turn away from him, things will not go any better. And so we have to remember that, that sin has consequences. And the people of Israel are learning that lesson quite dramatically in this passage. Verse 4, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops. And I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels. And Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tents as far away as the Oak and Zananim, which is near Kadesh. And so these verses here kind of set up a little more of the situation that's going on here. So the people of Israel being oppressed by Jabin and his general Sisera because of their disobedience, their unfaithfulness to the Lord. And we learn in these verses here, in verse 4, that Deborah, a prophetess, was judging Israel. Uh, this is a woman who was, in many ways, leading the nation of Israel. That she would sit, it says in verse 5, in this place between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country, and the people of Israel came to her for judgment. They would come to her with disputes, with questions they had, with issues that arose in the interpretation and use of the law. And so Deborah is in kind of a unique position within the scriptures here. Uh, that This is the only recorded instance of a female judge in the book of Judges. Uh, this is unusual in some way. Uh, we're also told that Deborah was a prophetess. Uh, so 
In Scripture, there are several other instances of women exercising the gift of prophecy, the office of being a prophet in this case. Uh, We see Miriam in Exodus 15. Uh, We see Huldah in 2 Kings 22. Noadiah in the book of Nehemiah. We see Anna in Luke chapter 2, the one who was prophesying about the coming of Jesus. And then we see the daughters of Philip in Acts chapter 21. So there's several different instances where we see Scripture referring to these women being prophets. Uh, So the Bible has not limited the office of prophet strictly to men, although it was unusual. It was less common, at least, than men doing it. We also see, so Deborah was a prophet and she was judging Israel. So she was acting in some sort of leadership capacity in this situation. And this is a great reminder that God does not limit what his people can do in many ways. Um, in Galatians chapter 3.28, we're told that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That before God in his sight, in respect to salvation and value before the Lord, that men and women are equal in God's sight. And that was in most of the cultural settings the Bible is written to, a pretty stark difference, a contrast from what the world around them was saying, uh, that women were usually subject to the men, uh, that as we read through the Old Testament laws, we see all these different laws they had to do to protect widows, to protect women, to protect orphans, because they were often oppressed. They were not presented with the same opportunities to provide for themselves, to defend themselves as men had. And so from the very beginning of Scripture, we see God place a great value on women and that he expresses that view of women as being equal to men. Now, obviously, if you're here at Calvary Chapel, you probably have some understanding of Scripture's teaching regarding male leadership as well. Uh, That as you read through the New Testament, we see the office of pastor elder within the church is limited to men. Um, This is not necessarily because of ability. This is God setting a standard, a precedent of roles that he desires for his people to follow. And so in this culture, in this situation, this is a bit of a departure from that role that God had assigned to men and women. I think in some way this illustrates the situation Israel found itself in. That they had disobeyed God, they had gone through that cycle of the judges a time or two already. Um, They had turned away from God, turned back to God, turned away from God. And as we read through the book of Judges, we're going to see those cycles kind of spiraling downward. That every time they repent and go back to God, it's not quite as good as before. And when they go back to their sin, it's worse than the sin that was there before. And so in this situation, we see that Israel has a little bit of an issue with the way that they are following God, with what they're doing. Um, That they're probably, in this case, was not a male prophet, a male judge who was stepping up to take that role. And so God decided to step in and to use Deborah in this situation, that she was willing, that she was able, and that God was going to use her 
to free his people and to bring himself glory. Again, not that this is anything against her, but just there is kind of a slight deviation from the roles that God had set up when he established creation and the nation of Israel. And so we see Deborah, this judge, this prophetess. Uh, in verse 6, it says, She summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh, Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, etc., etc. And then in verse 7, she says, I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river, and I will give him into your hand. And so Deborah is bringing this message from God that she calls Barak to come meet with her, to give him this message. We don't know a whole lot about Barak's life before this point. Um, obviously, he was some sort of leader that had the ability to call people to himself. Um, but beyond that, we don't know a whole lot. And so she calls Barak. She gives him these words that this is the command of God to go out to gather an army and to go fight. And she says once he does this, that God will bring the enemy to him and God will give them victory over the enemy. Um, this is you know, probably kind of a challenging message for him to hear, especially after 20 years of oppression under this powerful army that the Canaanites possessed at this time. And so, and so Barak... His response is a little less than enthusiastic. And in verse 8, Barak replies to Deborah, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So Barak has heard the message of the Lord, that he believes it, at least for the most part. But he seems to want something else along with that, that he wants a little more encouragement. He wants some sort of guarantee of God's favor. And so he tells Deborah, the prophetess, the judge over Israel at this time, that I'm only going to do this if you come with me. That she just told him what was going to happen, what God was going to do. And he mostly trusted it, but still had some doubts, some difficulties with that. And so Deborah's reply to him is that she will go along with him in verse 9. I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And so she's telling him, yes, God is still going to do his work. He is still going to do what he's promised to do. I'm going to come along with you as you have requested. But because of these doubts you've had, because of you know, this extra help you feel you need, she says that he is not going to get the glory for this victory. Um, that he had an opportunity to be the man, to be known for the rest of his life as the man who led God's armies in victory, defeated the Canaanites, and defeated their leader. And Deborah's telling him, that because of these doubts, he's going to lose out on a little bit of that. That God is not going to give him the glory for this victory. That the Lord will sell Sisera, the commanding general of the Canaanites, into the hand of a woman. 
And so this, again, is kind of a, a departure from the cultural setting that they were in, that men went to war, men fought battles, men won victories. But God was going to give his people victory through a woman to teach them a lesson, to make a point about who he is and what he can do and who he can use, but also to make a point about Barak's obedience to God. And so Deborah and Barak go, they gather these men, and then in verse 11, we kind of get this little side trail here. It tells us about Heber, the Kenite. Uh, So the Kenites, we're reminded, are the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. We see these people traveling with the Israelites in the Exodus, that they settle within the promised land among them, um, that most of them live with the Israelites. They adopt their worship of the one true God. Uh, But there's this one guy, Heber, who had gone and he had pitched his tent farther away near the Canaanites. So he was living his life a little separate from the people of Israel among the Canaanites. So we pick up in verse 12. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. So God has given his people victory. And we see that over and over again in the book of Judges, that God is the one who delivers his people, that he chooses these unlikely leaders. Oftentimes, they're outmatched militarily, and God gives them overwhelming victory over their enemies to remind them that it is not because of their own power, because of their ability, because of what they've done that they win, but because of God's goodness and his blessing, that God was going to win the victory. And that's uh, Deborah's encouragement to Barak in verse 14, that this is the day which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So her encouragement to Barak was that God went before them, that God would fight for them, and that God would give them victory. So they could trust in that victory because it was a promise from the all-powerful God that they worshiped. Verse 17, so the battle is won, the army has been defeated, and we find out what happens to their leader in verse 17. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hatzor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. 
And then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak pursuing, was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So again, not quite as gory as last week, but close. So we see another person come into the narrative here, that Sisera the general has been defeated, his army has been destroyed, that he's running away from the battle, and he comes across the dwelling place of Heber the Kenite, who it says was at peace with his king. And so Heber, this guy who had been descended from the Kenites, who had been amongst the people of Israel but chosen to live here, his wife, Jael, comes out and tells Cicero the Spleen General, hey, come here, you, you can hide here, you're okay, come in here, you know, you'll be all right. Um, and really the scene seems a little bit pitiful, um, that Cicero was this mighty general, the leader who had been oppressing this people for so long, um, that he had been the face of this oppression, that he should be the victorious one who's choosing to do what he wants. And instead, he comes and he's subjugating himself to this random woman here who's just stepped out. That This woman who would have been one of the people well within his power is now hiding him and helping him in his flight from the Israelite army. And some interesting things to note about Jael. So, Jael was not an Israelite, that she was a Kenite. You know, they were related to the people of Israel, but she is not an Israelite. That she's a woman. This is, again, not what you would expect to see in a battle narrative, especially in this age, in this culture. Um, so, you would think the people of Israel were delivered by a mighty warrior from Israel who was a man. Not in this case. As we read through her actions here, um, you know, we, we don't have to rehash the gory details, but it's interesting to think about the situation she finds herself in. Um, that this man, this general commanding a mighty army, probably would have been someone who would have captured and taken people as slaves in their conquests. Uh, that oftentimes, victorious armies oppressing other people were very, very brutal in their treatment of their captives. Uh, that this man, Sisera, had probably done horrible things to people that they had captured or come under their rule in the past. But in this situation, he is the one who is fleeing and he is the one who is hiding. And so her actions here at some level may have been self-defense, that she could have been concerned about what might happen to her at the hands of this brutal man. Another thing to note is that the people of Israel were at war with the Canaanites, and that she was taking a side in this war. She was taking action in this war, um, even though she was acting somewhat deceptively and somewhat brutally, that she was taking action in a war against God's enemies. And we also note here that this is a fulfillment of that prophecy that Deborah had made earlier on, that Sisera would be defeated by 
a woman. And so she is the fulfillment of that prophecy very shortly thereafter here. And we'll read, we'll see a little bit more about her actions as we get into the next chapter here. But it's interesting to think about the context of that, that God is working through this situation. He is working through this foreign, non-Israelite woman to defeat this mighty general that had been oppressing the people of Israel for years. In verse 23, it says, So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. So their initial battle was fought against the commander of Jabin's army, Sisera. They defeated his army, wiped out every last one of them, at least the ones that were sent, that his chief general has been killed by the hands of an unlikely victor. But we're reminded in verse 23 that God was the one who subdued Jabin, that he subdued this king, that God was the one who had won this victory by this army led by unlikely people, and God was the one who would get the credit for it. And in verse 24, we're told, the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. So the people of Israel continued the battle. They continued the fight. That God had given them the initial victory. God had given them momentum. But they were responsible to continue fighting against their enemies. And in many ways, the spiritual battle we face every day is the same way. That God has already won the victory. That God has purchased our redemption. That he has defeated sin and death for us. That the victory has already been won. But God still expects us to fight. That we still have to step out each day and choose to do what is right over what is wrong. That we have to put our sins to death each day. That we have to continue seeking God and growing in our relationship with him. I had a, uh, a teacher who uh, had a number of different things he said that kind of stuck with me. But um, one of them was the question he asked, are you responsible for your sanctification or is God? And he would answer yes. That God has given us a new heart. He has purchased our redemption. He's given us the ability to act in obedience to him. But we still have to make those choices of obedience day by day. That we have to continue doing the right thing, choosing to act in obedience, to follow after God, to give our hearts over to him each day in order to continue to see him work. That God has given us a responsibility to continue fighting just as he has given the people of Israel a responsibility to continue fighting against their enemies. Judges chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, so this is going to introduce a song of victory that the people of Israel will be singing. Uh, so it's worth remembering here, this is kind of a shift in what we're reading, that um, there was just kind of a historical narrative going on here, telling the story of what happened, uh, that now we're going to see the insertion of more poetic language into what we're reading. There's going to be some more figure of speech used. It's going to be written in a bit of a different way 
But as we go through this, we're going to learn a few details, too, about how God was working in this situation, about how the battle was won and how their enemies were defeated. So Judges 5, starting verse 1. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water, the mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. Verse 6. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anoth, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, when war was in the gates, was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. So we're introduced to this song, Song of Victory, that was sang by Deborah and Barak in celebration of the victory that God had given them over their enemies. Verse 2 tells us that the song was of praise, to bless the Lord. Um, We also see in verse 2 that people fulfilling their appropriate roles was a blessing to the Lord. That the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. And God has given each of us a role to fill in life. And doing so brings glory to him. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 tells us that God has prepared good works for us to do before we were even born. That God has set us in this time and in this place with a plan and with a purpose. And so it's important for us to not shy away from what God has given us to do. From the role that God has given us to fulfill. Um, The uh, story of the rich young ruler in Luke 18. We see a young man come to Jesus and ask him what he has to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus tells him that he has to keep all the commandments, he has to do all the things God has told him. And the young man tells Jesus, well, I've done all these things my entire life. What, what is it I'm still missing? I feel like there's something else. And Jesus tells him to sell everything he had, give his, the money to the poor, and to follow after him, to walk with him. And we're told that the young man turned away sad because he was wealthy because he didn't want to give up those things to follow Jesus. And that's not what God calls everyone to do. But we see this young man miss out on a tremendous opportunity that he could have experienced the blessing of giving to others. He could have experienced the freedom of not being tied to these possessions that were obviously exerting the wrong kind of influence over his life that this man could have walked with Jesus, learned from Jesus. But instead, when presented with that choice, he chose to hold on to the life that he had and the comfort that came with that. That this man shied away from the opportunity that God had given him to do what God 
desired for him to do, to experience the blessing of walking in obedience to God. And so for us today, we have to remember that God has placed us in this situation, that he has given us tasks to fulfill. Some are easy, some are not. But we have to remember when presented with those hard choices to choose to follow God, to not shy away or turn away from the roles he's given us to do. For parents, I know that we're often presented with those opportunities to train your kids, to love your kids, to discipline your kids. And usually it's not when it's convenient. You're usually not in a good mood. You're usually not feeling particularly ready for this to happen. But that's when the opportunity has come. That's the role God has placed you in. That you have to embrace that in that moment and choose to love those children for whatever is appropriate for the time. In our workplaces, God has put people around us. Some people we find difficult. Some people are a blessing. Some people... We need to encourage some to challenge that God has placed us there for a purpose. And we often have those moments where we can choose to do the right thing, to do what we know God wills, or we can choose the easy path and push it aside and put it off till later. That as we go through life, we're faced with constant choices of obedience, and we have to be prepared in our hearts and in our minds to make the right choice when those opportunities come and to walk in obedience to God, to embrace the tasks that he's given us to do. We also learn uh, in these verses, verse 4 tells us that the heavens dropped, yes, the clouds dropped water. Um, That in this battle uh, that we don't hear a lot of details about, they go into the open plain, Uh, that we're told that there's some sort of rainstorm that was unexpected for that season, Uh, that this would have made the chariots of the army of Jabin much more difficult to maneuver, to move around, that God had ordained these circumstances to help his people, that God was being faithful to give Israel the victory through this, that nature was fighting on behalf of the people of God. Uh, We're also told here how difficult life was under the oppression of Jabin and of Sisera. Verse 6 tells us that the highways were abandoned. Verse 7, the villagers ceased. Verse 8, was a shield or a spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? That Israel was oppressed to the point where they could not openly travel the highways. That they could not dwell in their villages and go about their day-to-day life in a normal manner. This was how bad things had gotten. That they didn't even have an adequate supply of weapons to fight against their oppressors. But that didn't matter to God because God was the one who gave the victory, not the might of Israel. Verse 10, song continues. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way. To the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, break out in song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. 
From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir marched down the commanders, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed, behind the, stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death, Naphtali too on the heights of the field. So these verses here begin in verse 10 with a reminder to tell of God's work and of God's glory, that God had won this great victory and his people were supposed to share it with the world, that Israel was designed to be a light among the nations, that people would see this unique nation, their unique relationship with God, and they would be drawn to seek him and to glorify him because of it. That our job, their job, was to share the glory of the God that we serve with a world that needs to hear it. The latter portion of these verses talks about some of the different tribes of Israel that were involved or not involved in this battle. Uh, that Issachar was faithful. Uh, the men of Benjamin and Ephraim fought in the battle. But we see that Reuben, Gilead, Dan, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, or excuse me, Asher, Gilead, and Reuben did not. Uh, that Zebulun and Naphtali were willing to risk their lives in battle, we're told in eight, verse 18. Uh, but some of these other tribes did not. They sat and pondered whether or not they wanted to be a part of this and chose not to fight with the other people of God against their enemies, against their oppressors. This is a good reminder that following God's direction can often be difficult, sometimes even unappealing. That Jesus tells us in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That following Jesus requires sacrifice. It requires a willingness to embrace difficulty and challenges and a willingness to do God's will and to place that before our own. And so some of the tribes of Israel were willing to do that, to make that sacrifice, to risk their lives obeying their God and seeking his glory. And some sat by the wayside and missed out on an opportunity to see God work and to be a part of what he was doing. Song continues in verse 19. The kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan. At Tanakh, by the waters of Megiddo, they got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought, from their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. Then beat loud, then loud beat the horse's hoofs with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Miraz, says the angel of the Lord, curses its habitants thoroughly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. 
She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Out of the windows she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man? Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera? Spoil of dyed materials embroidered? Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil? So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. So we see a few more details on this battle and what's going on in the closing segments of this song. Uh, So verse 20 and 21 talk about the stars fighting from heaven. And in 21, the torrent Kaishan swept them away. So the chariots of the army of Jabin, led by Sisera, are immobilized, essentially, in this valley by a torrential downpour that causes the Kaishan River running through this valley to flood over its banks to cause this area to be impassable mud. So the chariots became essentially useless. That the heavens were fighting for the people of Israel, fighting against their enemies on their behalf. That this victory was from God. In verse 23, we see a curse against a city, Miraz, because they did not come to help God. They did not take action to be part of this battle. Verse 24 contrasts that with the work of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, the woman who had killed Sisera. That she is pronounced as blessed because she took action, because she wanted to see God's people have this victory to see his enemies defeated, to, dis- to see evil put down. And so she took action in contrast to the people of Israel who should have known better that this foreign non-Israelite woman saw what needed to happen and did so better than many of the inhabitants of the nation of Israel. That she was blessed because she took action. And that's so much of what our life involves in following God. That we have to take action to obey. That we cannot sit by passively and wait for life to pass us by. That oftentimes we do have to wait on the Lord and on His sovereignty. But following God often requires choices, requires difficult choices and choices that lead us to take action for God and for his glory. Now we're told in verse 31, it says, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. In case the people have forgotten which side they want to be on, they need to be on, that God's enemies perish, but his friends are like the sun as it rises. And it closes by telling us that the land had rest for 40 years, that God had defeated his enemies, the enemies of his people, and given them rest through his sovereignty 
by the way he fought on their behalf, by the way he used some unexpected people to accomplish great things. So our New Testament tie-in this week is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 29, which is super tiny up on the screen. It says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And that's a lot of what we saw in this story here, that God chose those who would have been unlikely in the eyes of the world, that Israel was led by a hesitant general, by a prophetess who was a woman, that the final blow of victory was won, not by a mighty warrior, but by a non-Israelite woman who acted in obedience to God to take action against sin. And so in many ways, some of us might be less than in the eyes of the world, uh, that we all face doubts, that we have weaknesses, that we might not be as wise or as powerful as the world would think necessary. But that does not stop God from using us. So let's take courage in that, that God is able to use anyone to accomplish his will, that God can and will use unlikely people to accomplish his purposes, to do great things to bring glory unto himself. Let's remember that this week. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. I thank you that you are mighty, that you are good, Lord. I thank you that you are the one who gives victory, God, um, that victory belongs to you, as we were singing earlier. I pray that you would continue to give us hope in that, God, that we could remember that all we need to do is walk in obedience to you, and you will use us to do great things. I pray that you would give us peace in that, Lord, that we'll be able to rest in your sovereignty as we go through life, knowing that you will do your will, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name.